Introduction My father was born in Dundee. When he was a young man, his entire family moved to New Zealand, where he met and married my mother. Perhaps because we had so few relatives left in Scotland, I didn't visit that country until I was in my twenties. Even then, I didn't know about the islands of Scotland and their distinctive cultures. That is, until the day when one of my remaining Scottish cousins came out to our house in New Zealand with a beautiful cardigan that he'd bought for me in the Shetlands. I wore the cardigan for many years. Its design wasn't a tartan but something completely different, called Fair Isle after one of the islands in the Shetlands group. It looked like a Maori design to me. Of course, it isn't. But the Fair Isle style of knitting is pretty much the same as styles that are popular in Scandinavia. Thereby hangs a tale, one that I'll soon tell. Eventually, in 2018, I decided to make a proper tour of the islands of Scotland for myself. I wish I'd done so sooner. There was so much to see, from ancient Stone Age cultures to an amazingly strong Norse or Viking influence that I hadn't known anything about either. There are three main groups of islands. The Shetlands. The Orkneys, and the Hebrides, also known as the Western Isles. The Western Isles are further subdivided into the Inner and Outer Hebrides. Although these islands are all pretty far north, they are kept warmer than they would otherwise be by the final currents of the Gulf Stream, which carry enough warmth up from the Caribbean to also ensure that the coast of Norway remains ice-free past the Arctic Circle in winter, and to ensure that Iceland remains habitable as well. While they seem remote today, the Scottish Isles, which until 1399 included the Isle of Man, were often at the centre of life in earlier times, when travel by land was difficult and sailing was easy by comparison. For instance, the Celts of Scotland didn't originally speak Gaelic. They spoke Pictish, which was probably a form of Welsh. The quite different Gaelic language originated in Ireland and came to Scotland through the Hebrides and long peninsulas of western Scotland. From the point of view of a seafarer setting out from Northern Ireland, the seas to the northeast appear full of stepping stones that lead to Scotland. If the Inner Hebrides are crossroads between the Scottish and the Irish worlds, the Orkneys and Shetlands are crossroads too, namely, between the Scottish and the Norse worlds. The Shetlands lie halfway between Scotland and Norway, and they also lie on a line that stretches from Denmark and Norway to the Faroe Islands, which belong to Denmark, and Iceland. Today. The Shetlands are a stopover on a regular ferry route that runs from Denmark to the Faroes and Iceland. And they were an even more important stopover in Viking times. Gaelic has largely died out on the Scottish mainland, in favour of the English language. But the Gaelic language survives in good shape in the Outer Hebrides, which are about as far away from England as you can get and still be in the British Isles. In much of the Outer Hebrides more than half the population speaks Gaelic, and road signs put Gaelic names first, English second. Because the Shetlands are on an old-time sea road from Norway and Denmark to the Faroes and Iceland. And also about as far from England as you can get in the British Isles. It turns out that Norse influences are very strong there. Almost as strong on as Gaelic influences are in the Outer Hebrides, in fact. Dialects of Norse known as Norn were spoken on the Orkneys and Shetlands for many centuries before dying out, first on the Orkneys and then on the Shetlands. A map of Scotland and its islands published in 1654 shows the names of many islands in the form of such and such. The Danish or Norwegian word for island, spelled oi with a stroke through the o. Later on, this would be changed to ay or ey and contracted onto the proper name. Thus, the island shown as Siapinsu, 
In the 1654 map is called Chapinsey now. In fact, there are lots of islands around the British Isles and North Sea whose names end in EY or AY right down to Alderney, Jersey and Guernsey in the English Channel, as well as islands like Norderney off the coast of Germany. And that gives you some idea of the extent to which the Vikings once commanded the Northern Seas. Not all the islands in the old map have Viking-type names, however, even in the north. The Fair Isle has its present English name, though spelt in an old-fashioned way. Unfortunately, Norn has since died completely out in favor of English even on the Shetlands. So, while Shetland signs also give the Norse name for locations, it comes second there. The names given are Old Norse ones written in the style of spelling used in Iceland and the Faroes, rather than the Norn names, for the simple reason that almost no written records of Norn exist. Nearly all Norn speakers were illiterate for the whole of the time that it was spoken. Those Orkney and Shetland Islanders who could read and write preferred to record their thoughts in more respectable languages such as English. There's quite a strong Norse influence on the makeup of Scotland as a whole, an influence almost as strong as the far better known Gaelic input. Many Scottish place names, parts of place names, and other Scottish words come from the Norse, even on the mainland. For instance, there are a great many Scottish place names that end in Ness, such as Inverness. Ness comes from the Old Norse word for a headland or the end of a peninsula. The word Firth, as in Firth of Clyde, Firth of Forth, Firth of Tay and so on, comes from an Old Norse pronunciation of fjord, which also survives in Icelandic. Many Scots now identify with Nordic social democratic welfare states in modern political terms, via concepts such as the so-called Ark of Prosperity, arcofprosperity.org, which contend that Scotland's true destiny lies in the company of countries like Norway and that it should gain more independence from England accordingly. As such, the formerly almost overlooked Scandinavian or Norse connection in Scottish history is gaining more prominence, no doubt at the expense of the Gaelic side of things. Still, I was surprised to discover that a lot of the people on the Shetlands didn't consider themselves Scottish, but rather, as Scandinavians who've ended up being colonized by foreigners from Scotland. Part of the reason for the Shetlands' estrangement from Scottishness is that the inhabitants of the Scottish Islands have a historical grievance against the lairds, lords, from the mainland who kept the islanders in a state of illiteracy, allowed the Norn language to die out unwritten and also displaced many islanders from their farms in the 19th century in order to run more sheep. The same sorts of clearances went on in the Gaelic-speaking Scottish Highlands. Indeed, to the point that they're usually referred to as the Highland clearances even though they went on in the islands as well. Still, the folk of the Highlands and the Western Isles didn't have any other national identity to fall back on. More Gaelic than Norse in those parts, they were stuck with remaining Scottish. After all, what could be more Scottish than speaking Scots Gaelic and wearing a tartan? But the people on the Orkneys and Shetlands, the Shetlanders in particular, were more Norse than Gaelic and Warfare Isle. I saw a tartan-kilted Highland pipe band on the Orkneys which is culturally half and half. But there's hardly any sign of Scottishness of the kilts and bagpipes sought on the Shetlands. Nor do the Shetlanders brew single malt whiskey from local ingredients to sell at a high price, a practice for which the Highlands and Western Isles are famous, and the Orkneys too. The other thing promoting a degree of separatism is that the Shetlands hold the key to much of the North Sea's oil. There's a huge oil processing facility at Salamvo on the Shetland mainland, and the location of the Shetlands helps to enlarge the United Kingdom's, or Scotland's, claim on the oil fields, which would be a lot smaller otherwise. On the other hand, the Western Isles, or Hebrides, 
don't have much of anything at all apart from wind, scenery, and whiskey distilleries. And so once again there is less fuel for independence in the Western Isles, as we might say. Along with their history of successive waves of Gaelic, Norse and Scottish colonization, the Isles also bear many traces of the Picts and of even older Stone Age and Bronze Age civilizations, with buried villages lately uncovered by erosion at Scarabray in the Orkneys and Yaltov in the Shetlands, primitive but ingenious circular castles called Brocks, and Stonehenge-like rings of standing stones The nature on Scotland's islands is incredible, too. It hasn't been greatly affected by the human presence and is being restored. Giant white-tailed eagles, relatives of America's bald eagle, are returning to the Orkneys after a century of absence. They have many surprisingly attractive beaches of white and pink sand, including one so vast on the Outer Hebrides island of Barra that it serves as an airstrip for scheduled air services, the only one of its kind in the world. It's said of these beaches that they look tropical, but the water isn't. Part of the reason the beaches of the Scottish Isles look tropical is because they often have brilliant white or pastel-coloured sand underneath pure, turquoise water. The coasts of the Scottish Isles are mostly rocky, without muddy rivers to pollute the water. And rocky coasts also support the growth of coralline algae, algae that secrete a substance resembling the hard, reef coral of tropical waters onto the rocks beneath the sea. True coral is based on tiny animals rather than algae, plants. It only grows in warm seas, such as the seas that surround tropical islands, the Red Sea, and the waters of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. There, it eventually gets ground up by rocks and waves to produce the brilliant white or pastel-shaded beaches that we associate with such holiday destinations. The hard structures that are produced by coralline algae in colder seas are more modest, but produce a similar result once they too have been ground up by the action of the elements. Coral beaches look great, whether they are in Scotland or Samoa. I was in awe of the island life. Enjoy my read.